0: listening to the Central Station podcast where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else so pull up a stump pop the billy on or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home
1: you can't live and work in the northern territory and not have a story or two to tell so Imagine how many stories a Danny Hayes must have, having flown as a helicopter mustering pilot for over 30 years. I think it's safe to say that he has seen and done a lot of things, and has got the experience to back up his opinions. So, at eight months pregnant, I headed out to Minero Station, northeast of Catherine, to sit down with Danny and hear some of his yarns. This episode is the first of two episodes with Danny. In this episode, he shares yarns from his childhood and early days as a pilot. In the second episode, Danny recounts his history of finding himself in some hairy situations while flying, and how experience and a bit of good luck prevailed so he could live to tell the tale. Danny, if you're listening, just know that I'll be back for at least one more episode, because we didn't even scratch the surface of the stories you have to tell especially how you and your wife purchased your own cattle station in the wake of the live export ban, a time when it was pretty hard to be in this industry. As per usual, I started this episode by asking Danny to tell me about his childhood.
0: The experiences that you grow up with, like we, me and my two brothers. At Kunjulela, we had a great upbringing. We, we did school of the air, correspondence. We'd do a set of schoolwork in three days, and then we'd be in the stock camp for the other four days, running scrubbers, like just riding horses. And I don't know, it was the greatest time in my life from, from what I can remember. Going out, it was that exciting. Like You'd take coaches out, you'd see a mob of wild cattle, you'd sneak around them, run them into the coaches. The bulls would come out. Each one of us boys had somebody that we had to chase to pick up their hats and their tobacco and catch their horses after they'd thrown the ball, you know, and you had to be there, give them the horse, you know, pick everything up. And that was your job, you know. So you poke back to the coaches feeling pretty good that you sort of got everything and you didn't lose his tobacco. And, (laughs) and that's what we sort of did. And then, you know, we end up selling that property, Kanjalala, and moving. So we could get educated, basically. <laughs> like,
1: So that yeah. first property you mentioned,
0: Conjulella. Cund- Cund- yeah, Conjulella. I was like, I'm not going to even try and say that. Yeah.
1: Whereabouts was that?
0: In between Springshore and Tambo on the Great Dividing Range.
1: Okay. And you also spent some time in the Kimberley's as a kid, did you?
0: Yeah, yeah. Mum and Dad ran Gordon Downs, managed Gordon Downs for uh, Vesties years ago. So that was where we, we had um, Indigenous nannies. You know, we sort of grew up with the Indigenous there. Years later, they like they still ring mum and dad, and then we we also spent some um, time in, at Beswick and Bullman. Years later, like we moved down to the Brisbane Valley, and then we moved back up here again. And dad managed Bullman for a while, like they had. I think they had four or five thousand head of cattle there. It's a long time ago, and I, I don't really remember the ins and outs of it. I just remember that we were at Bullman, and mum was a nurse. She was a nurse at Beswick as well, and uh, fairly. Like a third certificate nurse, she could deliver babies and that sort of stuff. So, um, I think mum was actually on more money than dad, you know, government paid out in that atmosphere. Yeah, they couldn't get too many nurses to move out there in those days.
1: So, your entire childhood was pretty much on the land in the outback,
0: yeah, yeah, not like not very often. We never had, we always seemed to have horses and exposed to a hell of a life in general because, like, even when we're at Bullman, there was a there was a uh, uh, field kill meat works there for buffalo and we, we'd go out with those fellows and shoot buffalo and drag buffalo onto the trailers and like for us it was just fun, not work.
1: What do you remember of your time at Gordon Downs? And for anyone listening that's not familiar with that property, that's uh, I guess in the east Kimberley, just southeast of Halls Creek, is that right?
0: Yep, yep. It's, it's now part of Flora Valley but it used to be a separate property on the Sturt River scheme, on the Sturt River plateau sort of thing or the runoff besides Borundudu. Or like we there was a uh three hundred at least three hundred people lived there, indigenous lived there, and like I can remember dad had his killer boys and his garden boys and they were sorta of older fellows out of the stock camp. And once you got too old to be in the stock camp you progressed into the killer pen and they'd kill three head a day and then there was like four or five fellows in the gardens and they were growing carrots and peas and whatever. Like, it was just full on all the time. And then um, you had your kitchen girls, and they baked bread for the whole 300 people. So that was like you had big bread ovens going all the time, and you could always, like, you had the smell of fresh bread was unreal sort of thing. Yeah, so it was a big operation the whole time, just managing that many people. And, like, there was rubbish runs, and everything had to be tidy. Everybody had to be fed. Mum was the nurse there then. And yeah, like it was just like I can just remember you're always out and about and doing stuff.
1: And so this would have been prior to the Wave Hill walk-off and and when things started to change in that landscape. And if it's sounding familiar to any of our listeners, what you're describing now sounds quite familiar to uh, Dr. Dave Morell, who was in an earlier episode, grew up around the same time. I think he's probably a little bit older than you on a property in the same region.
0: Yeah, well, the Wave Hill walk-off happened when my uncle was managing Wave Hill and then at uh, my other uncle went back and um, contract mustered Wave Hill, basically with the same people that were at the same stock camp that was the Wave Hill stock camp. He just went and picked them fellas up and went back and mustered Wave Hill, much to my other uncles disgust. <laughs> and Uncle Ralph managed Wave Hill for quite a long time and then Uncle Lynn or Shorty um he was a fair sort of a rogue and uncle ralph knew that (laughs) so he used to make him bring in all the earmark pieces out of the ears and count those and um that was fine until he got right out the back and he found all these cattle that had their ears on both sides earmarked all the way around
1: (laughs) oh my gosh so for any of our listeners who might not be familiar with earmarking can you describe what that is
0: uh, earmarking is a form of identification where you take a piece out of a BCR and it may be a U or a square or a V and that actually identifies it's it's an easy identification mark without having to look at the brand. You only gotta look at the head and you can identify whether it's from this property or another property just by recognising the earmark.
1: So it's kinda of like a like a hole punch, but bigger yeah. and on the edge. And so your uncle had told his brother Oh, the way I know how many cattle you've processed is if you bring me one piece from each beast, one, cause normally you would just take one piece out of one ear. Yeah. But you said he went out the back later on and <laughs> saw that their ears were like, yeah, one yes. of those decorations you make at Christmas, like a doily with all these holes missing out of them.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Uncle yep.
1: Shorty, what a cheeky bugger.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No, he was, uh, he was full of tricks. <laughs> I think he taught most of the rogues in the territory before they sort of, <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, well, I guess if he, yeah. Half his luck, I guess. Yeah, uh, and you know, I don't know. You okay. know, it's family, but <laughs>
0: yeah, he was. Uh, <laughs> 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 I think it was just his way of, um, like, it was all a bit of gamesmanship and one-upmanship sort of thing, you know. As good as somebody else was, you you sort of had to work out a way to get around that. And actually be a bit, bit better sort of thing, so yeah.
1: What was the other uncle's name, the one who was managing? One Uncle field?
0: Ralph, yeah. Well,
1: I guess, you know, at the same time, Uncle Ralph would have learned a valuable lesson from that, <laughs> that maybe he'll go and check the cattle before he takes a oh. number of earpieces at face value. So, yeah. you know, there's always a lesson to be learnt. I understand that some years later you actually ran into one of your nannies from Gordon Downs as an adult and you were very much remembered.
0: Yeah, it was quite amazing. It, like I wouldn't have seen oh, seen her for uh, 30-odd years. Yet as soon as I walked out of the shop at Fitzroy Crossing, she recognised me and got me in a bear hug and got me like, Danny, my boy, where have you been? <laughs> And I'm going, holy shit! Who's this? <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, like she like wouldn't let me go. Introduced me to all her nieces, and yeah, their eyes were like saucers, and their jaws were on the ground as well, sort of thing, because they'd never seen <laughs> seen this. Whole, seen her grab a white fella anyway and give get him in a bear hug and not let him go. <laughs>
1: What else stands out to you about your childhood in all these remote places? Whether it was WA, the territory, Queensland, you know, it sounds like until you had to move for, in, into a, a use the quotation marks a town for school, you it was all distance ed, but really it was kind of get that done as fast as you can and then be outside.
0: Yeah, yeah. We schooling like mum made sure we did our school properly. But we like we it wasn't like school years. when we got up at six o'clock with the men and had breakfast, we went to work, we went to school, like, and we didn't stop until five o'clock that afternoon when the men came back, like you might stop for a quick smoker or whatever, but we were there to get our schoolwork done, not minimise the hours that we did it. So as soon as we got our schoolwork done, we could get back out in the stock camp and go have fun.
1: Was your mum the one teaching you?
0: Yeah. So
1: from like around 6am to 5pm, she'd be in the scoring with three boys. That woman deserves a medal. Yeah.
0: And, and cooking and stuff at the same time. Oh like, my
1: gosh. How did she keep her sanity? Uh, we'll have to I get her on the podcast and ask her.
0: Yeah. Yeah. She, um, she did a hell of a job. Yeah. Uh, I can, I can remember we weren't that easy to teach either.
1: Yeah. I can imagine.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I can remember, uh, getting a ruler broken over my back. And <laughs> <laughs> Get it. and probably deservedly so too i'd reckon yeah. well
1: i guess did it work though did you did it only happen once or was yeah,
0: this a only happened
1: once okay well that yeah. kind of brings me back to my original question what were you like as a child so pretty adventurous uh it sounds like and you know i love that story about going out mustering and you guys each each of your brothers had a little job to go and Fetch the horse and the tobacco and whatever else didn't, yeah. you know, went astray while the men were were catching the bulls. Were you a well-behaved child? Um, Did you take instructions well?
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Sometimes, but sometimes they had to be enforced with a flogging. But <laughs> but usually for my own safety because I was, you know, I had a really, um, you know from my memory he was a big pony like he was nearly 16 hands and um and a, a horse called Chance and I used to run like he could get through the scrub like you wouldn't believe like he could just go through Briglow and um not many of the men could keep up because I was only a little child on a big pony and he could go like hell so they had to keep me under control like a dog sort of thing you know because I was just like a pup let loose <laughs> <laughs> oh i but, wish
1: i had photos of that time or videos of you just being like this little boy just riding around flat out. What was it like when you moved to town to go – was that for high school that you guys moved to uh, Um, Maryborough? Yeah, yeah. So after having such a free childhood and such an adventurous childhood where you got your schoolwork done but there was so much autonomy and all this, you know, stuff you could do outside of school hours or, you know, if you got your schoolwork done in in X amount of days and other days you'd be going and working. If you were going to school in town, I guess that was more structured. You had to go to the school hours. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Like, I had a lot of trouble fitting in at school originally because of the maturity of the other kids. Like, I was used to dealing with adults all the time, not with children. And, uh, well, and, and you were back to dealing with children or teenagers, not adults. And, like, say, uh, yeah, I had a lot of trouble initially fitting in, but, um. I think within 12 months or whatever, I adjusted to it and away I went and we, you know, we got into football, um, camp drafting and yeah, had a, had a good time again. You know, you, yeah, it's, it's not like you don't adjust and, you know, it doesn't take that long for children to adjust to their the atmosphere and stuff that they're around and find a way to fit in and, and keep going. Like initially it's a bit of a shock, but yeah, yeah, you always seem to adjust and keep going.
1: I'm guessing you're pretty disappointed when you figured out that you couldn't do your school, you know, do longer days and less days and then go out and do something that you actually had to turn up Monday to Friday, you know, eight to three or whatever the hours were.
0: Yeah. Uh, funnily enough, it wasn't that hard to adjust to from my memory. Really? Yeah. Like, um, yeah, that, like we moved properties. So we moved from one area to another area. So that wasn't, you didn't have access to that. You didn't like the the thing of running, going going coaching, mushing, running, and scrubbers, and that sort of stuff wasn't there anymore. So you you sort of progressed to football. Um, yeah, like you know we did football, bit of boxing, um, and camp drafting, and but you still had your horses and like, and we nearly went every weekend camp drafting, so it was like it was pretty awesome. So there, like there wasn't
1: again. a void there. There was plenty of other things to kind of fill that spot and keep you just as occupied and entertained and engaged
0: yeah yeah oh, like, we never okay. stopped yeah yeah dad what? dad always had to see the breaking in horses or you know we get back from school we had to ride and keep our camp horses fit and like so as soon as you got back from school you're on a horse um trotting them going over them washing them ragging them feeding them making sure they were right you know presented properly when you did go to a draft and that sort of stuff and yeah
1: what were your plans as you got towards the end of school? What did you think you wanted to do or wanted to be?
0: Oh, I didn't really know. Just go back onto the land. So, like, as soon as I did grade 10, I went to Emerald Pasture College for, like, 11 and 12 because mum was adamant that we were going to do 11 and 12 no matter what. So um, we did that at Emerald Pasture College. The whole three of us went to Emerald Pasture College. So away we went. What was
1: the age difference between you and your brothers? Can I ask?
0: Oh uh, well, the like only twelve months. Like, so you're um, a pretty tight bunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we we're all within twelve months of each other, basically. And say, so, like, if I was, I went to Ramal Pasture College one year, then Scott, my brother, was there the next year, and then I left, and then Scott was the second year, and Mike was the first year. Yeah, so it was really. You know, when we went through, there was two of us there nearly all the time. So
1: the teachers were basically traumatised after, like, three <laughs> or four straight years of Hayes boys. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, but we were pretty good. Like, we, d- we didn't play out that much. Oh,
1: I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm, that's why I wanted to ask you about what were you like as a child because as we'll get to it in a little bit, your friends and family these days do refer to you as an extremist, you know, and like I said, you don't do anything half-assed. So I just imagine as a child, I'm like... Did, did this extremist behaviour develop later on in life or has he always been a bit of a wild child? No,
0: I reckon later on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so for yeah. anyone listening out there that has a nice, calm, well-behaved child, yeah. don't necessarily think they're going to stay like that forever <laughs> then. And anybody that's got a wild child, they might calm down at some point. Yeah. Yes, you can't.
0: You never it's, know. Yeah, um. It's, like, like I don't really think I'm an extremist. It's just what they think. So I think I just, yeah, like when I do things, I, I, I don't muck around. I know I, I seem to concentrate on it as, as much as I can to achieve what I need to do. And at times I still look at that and I'm disappointed with myself with, geez, I didn't put enough concentration into it. You know, I just, if I'd have been onto that a bit more, that wouldn't have happened. Like, and so I, I'm probably very self critical about, what i do and how i do it and um but that's pretty bad for everybody else too because oh. because um if they take a step out of line or half a step the wrong way or whatever I like i'm right on to them. don't do that you know yeah. like and and i've usually got the reasons and the ability to to teach why not just say don't do it like don't do it because this happens
1: at least though with that, you're not just hard on other people, you're hard on yourself, because I think it can be pretty frustrating when you see someone that's really hard on other people, but they don't necessarily put that back on themselves or experience that. So at least, And you're also, as you're talking about this, you're clearly aware of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I developed a, a hate for people that yell at people but can't explain why like I'll yell at people and a lot of times when I'm yelling it's for their own safety to get the hell out of there and because they're going to get hurt or don't do something like that because you're going to get hurt. And then if I yell at people because they're doing things wrong with animals, it's that it can be done an easier way and without stressing yourself out or the animal. Probably learnt that through getting run over a lot and getting hurt a lot but... um. And I was lucky enough to be exposed to Ray Hunt when I just left uh, Emerald Pastry College. I went back there the next year and did a Ray Hunt school and I've also flown Bud Williams around in a helicopter. So those fellas, they are the absolute top of the tree with animals, like how to handle them, what their thought processes are. And um, so to be exposed to that and and take it on board, not just exposed to it and go, oh, yeah, they know what they're doing or don't know what they're doing. Um, you sort of open your, it opens your mind up a lot to how to go about stuff. And, but, but what I was saying originally was I don't, if somebody yells at somebody and then goes, Oh shit, you're not worth employing if you don't know that. That, that just means that they don't know what they're talking about. You must be able to explain why somebody got yelled at. You know, either mate, if that beast had to hit that gate and your fingers are in there between the chain and the latch, you know what your fingers are going to look like? I said, don't, put your hands there, you know, like it's simple stuff. And you could see that they'd never even thought of it and you're going, don't do it. You know, um, things like, oh, I don't like, you know, the way gates are set up on yards and that sort of stuff. On On a big yard, two gates that meet in the middle to be chained, they're a death trap. Like have one big gate that you can take right around and shut and... As soon as you've got to step across an open spot to get the other gate, them cattle are looking to come back over you. So I don't like that. I don't like that yard design and I'll change it.
1: With those gates and you talk about so where you've got two gates that meet in the middle, the one thing that drives me bonkers at a set of yards is where you'll you'll close one and then when you go get to the other one, that first one will swing back open and it's like this constant like you either need two people or if there's one of you, you're just like running and you like throw it and you go get the other one and you throw it and you're just trying to go back and forth until you get them both. Like,
0: oh, that drives me bonkers. And meanwhile, the cattle are trying to run back over (laughs) the top of you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So you just mentioned Ray Hunt and Bud Williams and I have to say every time you say those names and since I've been out here visiting you on the station, I just – it, the jealousy has not subsided at all. For anyone that's not aware, I guess would it be fair to call them basically the the, the Godfathers of WA for horse behavior and horse training, horsemanship, and Bud for cattle.
0: Yeah, it's not that Australia didn't have great horsemen and and um, and like we like the, there's plenty of great horsemen in Australia. It was the terminologies and stuff that they put to it that the Aussies didn't have. You know, like um, Bud come over and said, you've got to work a tea. you've got to have a straight lawn, you've got to do this. You know, um, when this happens, you know, you you do that. And I found that after he'd been through people on the ground, it was a lot easier to talk to him out of a helicopter because, like, helicopter pilots weren't in charge of anything on the ground and you had that much more experience than most people on the ground. you say, oh, you just need to give him a bit more room or this or that where... You could then go there and say, "Ah, uh, didn't you fellas just do a Bud Williams school? Yeah, and well you're not working a T, you're not in a straight line, you're not this, you, you certainly didn't take anything in. And then all of a sudden the head stockman on the leading hand goes, Ah oh, Jesus, you know, gee fellas do this, do that, and you're saying, Well, now you're too close, you know, like you, you got nobody in the lead working the lead, you're trying to push the tail over the lead, you know, you need somebody up there feeding the lead through. And didn't Bud teach you that? Yeah, 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 Oh, hang on, give us a second, we'll sort it out, you know. Yeah. Uh, you could actually, he put the terminology there and because it wasn't a helicopter pilot saying it, and you just kept mentioning Bud, you could get done what you wanted on the ground and it was only because they're young, you know, that the application of what they'd learnt with a small mob of cattle but actually taking it out and using it in the field was different and it was hard for them to do the crossover but once you mentioned it and said you know look this is what you know this is what he was talking about you got to be up there feed them through the you know have somebody there to make sure that gateways clean and it goes through and you know lead still going and and these pilots back here are working the T and they're in a straight line it's it's you know most of it was done on foot with 30 head not on horseback with 2000 so just getting that sorted out, but I like really enjoyed working people on the ground after Bud Williams had come through.
1: I think every field, whether it's sports or music or, I don't know, any, anything has their leaders. And like you said, there would, would have been great people and still are great people in Australia. But, you know, when we think of a boxer, Muhammad Ali, you know, there are the greats. And I think yeah. that's where Ray Hunt and Bud Williams come in. They are the greats for what they've contributed to their fields. At the time, did you realise what – because I'm sure back then, you know, going to a Ray Hunt school would have been like, oh, cool, but, you know, now, you know, I don't have the opportunity to do that. I can watch videos, I can see DVDs, I've heard, you know, and then I've got another 30 years of, like, hearing stories about him and the legend he is. Did you realise at the time, like, how amazing an opportunity that was or was it kind of just another horse school for you?
0: I'd never really done horse schools been exposed to a lot of great horsemen but that Bray Hunt was the actual first horse girl I'd actually done and it it did amaze me because of what he could achieve with a horse in such a short period of time and that's what changed my attitude a lot um, was what he could get a horse to do in 10 minutes could take us two days. And he was just watching his horse that much closer to to get what he needed. Like he could teach a horse to load on a horse float that had only just been handled, you know, that day. And he'd just have a rope around its thing and he'd flick the rope and he'd have a noose around its nose and teach it to lead. And then in the end, like within, say, 20 minutes, he could stand on the other side of the float, give the rope a tug, and that horse would trot around, trot up in the float and stand there. In twenty minutes, and I'm going holy shit! Like I need to get onto this because, um, I, like, I was teaching horses to load on floats and do that sort of stuff, and I'm just like, he could he could have a foal leading around backwards by its tail in fifteen twenty minutes, a yearling, you know, just stuff that I thought was impossible. He could achieve in a really short period of time. Yeah, and he just um, opened my eyes up to what could be achieved and what you could get your horses to do.
1: Yeah, my jealousy is not subsiding at all. It's it's kind of getting worse as you keep talking. <laughs> yeah. I'm so jealous. At this time, you were 19 and so you'd been out of school a year or two. What were you doing at that time? Did you know what you wanted to do? Like, had, had you decided you wanted to be a horseman and work with horses or?
0: I was still giving mum and dad a hand for the first 12 months and then I came back to the Northern Territory. I think it's that young, lollable thing, like, you know, started arguing with dad too much and didn't, you know – like I, you always argue with your father, you know, and that I think that's just part of that herd mentality where that young fella's got to get kicked out of the herd and go and fend for himself. So um luckily enough, I came back up here and did uh, 12 months with uh, my uncle Shorty at Innisfile. You know, I was exposed to bull catching, coach mastering helicopters all over again, and then I decided I got sick of waiting on the end of Hessian wings, waiting for helicopter pilots to bring cattle in after I'd just set the wing up and... They, they knew more about the cattle. You could Next time they came back, they were talking about the cattle and stuff and did this bull give you a hard time or did that bullock make it in? And you're going, they know just as much as what I know about these cattle. I'm doing all the work. <laughs> so <laughs> I decided I'd better get my helicopter licence. <laughs>
1: What was your first memory of working with a helicopter? I mean, when I can't even remember when they started being used in mustering. Was it like the late '60s or the '70s? They kind of started to be used.
0: Yeah, well, I can remember helicopters being at Wave Hill when I was a child. So, like probably 50 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So I can remember uh, John Waymouth. I can remember seeing Bell 47s parked on the airstrip at at Wave Hill years and years ago.
1: Those are scary. I saw one of those in someone's hangar the other day. It was, it was kind of taken apart, but I was like, that looks like a weird submarine thing. Yeah. It was not, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did not inspire confidence <laughs> in me.
0: Well, they're actually a terrific oil machine. Yeah. 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 I was lucky enough to fly Bell 47s and Kawasaki's and they taught me a lot. Um, I never flew Hughes 300s and, by the sound of it, I probably missed out on a little bit, a little bit there. I, I probably should have had a go at a Hughes 300 at some stage, but it, the opportunity never rose, so I never did. But a Bell 47, everybody, you know, they're, they're the old, a G5A Texas snowbar as a mastering machine was as good as you would get. Yeah. And like that's probably real helicopter pilot talk, but all well, them old fellas would probably agree with a G5A normally aspirated Texas snow bar. Yeah, they were a good I'll machine. just smile
1: and nod. I'll be yeah. like, yep, yep. I'll go home and ask my partner and be like, what can you decipher that? <laughs> yeah. How big a role did helicopters play? So, what would you have got your license in the 80s then?
0: Uh, yep. Yeah. It, it was, uh, uh I think 92, something like that.
1: Yeah. Okay. Don't, yeah. Sorry, I don't want to make you any older than you.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> don't want to be adding on any years, but how big a role did helicopters play then? compared to now because I know today there's I don't really know like many stations that would do a muster without something in the sky and even even in say the Barkley where it's really open country you can still have a bunch of machines in the sky. So were helicopters kind of at every single muster back then or was it like a when you needed them they were brought in or when you were in tough country?
0: No, they were, they were prevalent the whole time. Like yeah. as soon as Tech program hit, there wouldn't have been a BTEC program without helicopters. There would have been too many animals shot. Yeah. Yeah. So helicopters became very. Oh, I can't remember when they weren't. Like there was a. From my memory, there seemed to be a lot more helicopters, a lot more cattle 20 years ago than what there is now. Really? Yeah. Like a lot of country got cleaned up through BTEC. Like I can remember you went to a whole bunch of different areas mustering and there was still a lot of cattle there. Whereas. The cattle are under more under control. There's more fences, but your Arnhem and your national parks and that sort of stuff are so much more tidier. Like there's, there's nowhere near the numbers of cattle there, nowhere near the numbers of feral animals there that there was before BTEC.
1: And for anybody wondering what that is, we talk about it a fair bit more in Dr. Dave Morell's. Uh, episode, which, uh, you know, just search his name and wherever you listen to this podcast because I don't remember which number it is. Now, I'm having some serious baby brain here. I can't believe I'm actually about to admit this on a podcast and it's going to be a permanent <laughs> recording forever. Is BTEC bovine tuberculosis eradic- eradication campaign or is it like brucellosis tuberculosis eradication campaign? What does the B stand for?
0: Um Brucellosis. Okay, cool. cool. Yeah, okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. I was like is it? Is it not? But yeah, okay. Well, and,
0: tuberculosis. Yeah.
1: yeah. But, the, but then there's the B. So was that for, was it for brucelosis and tuberculosis or was it just, or is it like bovine tuberculosis? We need to Google this. We don't, yeah. we don't have range or wifi or anything here now. So we can't, but that's all right. I'm happy yeah. to, I'm happy to take one for the team and
0: yeah, yeah. Ask the don't, question. Don't, don't worry, I can't answer that question either. As
1: you're listening, please Google this. But, yeah, yeah, there's heaps more. We talk about that a fair bit in Dave's episode. So so helicopters have been a big part. So is that kind of when you got your licence? Was that ongoing, that, it, that I, campaign?
0: I, yeah, I, it was ongoing. Um, I was probably towards the end of it, Like, but I can sort of quote what I was told off by older pilots from Helimaster at that time and like some of the quotes were unbelievable like off just out of the VIDs which sort of cl- included VID Modelo Pigeon Hole, uh Mount Stanford they shot 120,000 donkeys and 80,000 horses and they still carried a great number of cattle so when you start thinking of those properties carrying that during that period of time in my opinion the country still recovering from it because um I found blue bush up on top of one hill in Gilgoy's, and it would only be because cattle couldn't get there. Um, and the blue bush was slowly starting to come back through other areas in the VRDs. But you, you sort of think of the not like 200,000 200, feral animals plus the cattle the VRDs were carrying.
1: It's a huge amount of grazing pressure.
0: Ah, yeah. You know, so just in some of the areas that I saw with BTEC, I think that was an un, uh, it was a, it was a byproduct of BTEC that nobody really took into account other than pilots and stock inspectors because stock inspectors, yeah, they, they eradicated a lot of feral animals in the process of eradicating tuberculosis. So yeah, that was a, to me, that was a great side benefit for the whole industry.
1: Would that also have given you a chance to really get a great number of hours flying and really once you got your licence kind of, yeah, get that experience under your belt rather than just having to wait for when a muster here and a muster there? Like you would have just been gone flat out.
0: Yeah. My work was probably more involved with mustering than the actual shooting out and that sort of stuff. I did a lot of R22 hours and then I'd do probably a month or, a month to six weeks of uh, Kawasaki or Bell 47 work. Every now and again I used a Bell 47 for mastering, but not often. So uh, most of my work was mustering because R22s, all the old fellas love their Bell 47s and R22s use less fuel and were quicker getting from A to B. So, yeah, and I, I got based on the Barkley, which was a long way away from anywhere. Like, a long way away from heli muster sort of thing. And, um, I never, like, whereas a lot of fellas did thousands of hours B tech work, shooting and that sort of stuff. I never actually did that many hours every year. B tech, most of mine was mustering, yeah. you know, like you had to do your first rounds when brand wean and then yeah, B tech was part of it. And like, the, there wasn't often when I wouldn't like muster a paddock, probably, you know, be Sherwin did a lot of good things. For the country put in a lot of yards in places but they weren't real easy yards to yard up in (laughs) because he'd build them beside a turkish nest and leave a 10 foot gap between the yard and the turkish nest and nobody sort of really thought that they should stick a panel or try and fence that gap off for you when you're in a helicopter and you're yarding up 2,000 head and you're by yourself it was uh, like things had to get a bit radical to happen like I taught myself to line cattle up and I'd jump cattle and I, I don't know if other pilots have done it, but for me to be able to put a mob of cattle in a set of yards on the Barclay by myself with a big plane, you know, a big open plane around you and not much help, so you'd muster in there and you'd go, holy Jesus, here we go, because you've got 2,000 head plus. You're by yourself and you're trying to do a yard up. So I'd land set the yards up and I'd always go through my smaller yard into my bigger yard in the Sherwin yards and I'd line it up and you'd go down one wing because they'd be going one side. I'd jump me lead, bang the other side to make sure they are still going through my gates, float back to the tail as fast as you could, hit them, up your wing, jump your lead, <laughs> up the other side, and you just, you know, and everybody is, Jesus, you're radical. Can't you just sit in one, you know, sit in the right spot and they all go in the yard? And I felt like I had older pilots. Tell me that, you know, well, you're not that good a cattleman if you just can't sit in one spot and put them in the yards. I'm thinking, I'd love to see you fellas get over here in these Bell 47s and put these in by yourself. Cause I'll tell you what, there'd be a few wrapped up on the ground.
1: I just can't imagine the pressure of that situation in a general yard up. So when cattle are being put into the yards and you've got people on the ground, it's like all hands on deck for the minute, you know, you, you keep, you've got to keep a certain amount of pressure going so that because, you know, once cattle, the lead gets into the arch, usually they hit something and they want to turn around and come back to where they've come from. You're there still trying to make sure that you get the tail end of the mob in there before the, the, the lead or the front end of the mob are trying to come back. And then usually someone's like jumping off their horse or a couple of people or, you know, throwing their motorbike to the side and running and getting those gates. If you're the only person there and you're in the sky, what was that pressure like when you... Cause obviously you'd have to land and run and get the gates. Like that's, that's a yeah. bit, there's a bit much going on there.
0: Yeah. So, uh, and that's probably why I learnt you needed to go through the smaller yard into the bigger yard. Cause your cattle would stay across in the bigger yard. But even those Sherman gates, they were, they were monsters of gates. So I always, um, tried to leave one gate shut and only yard up through one gate. Cause I got nearly run over that many times trying to get two big gates and my helicopter only got smashed that many times. They've gone. Got to work out a way here otherwise, like, I'm better off doing a tougher yard up than hitting the ground and have cattle run over me as I'm bloody trying to shut the gates because once they got a flow on, there's no, you know, coming back over. There's no way you're going to stop it. You've got too oh, many cattle
1: there. It's 100% the Lion King when Simba's dad gets, like, trampled. Like, once you get that stampede going, then
0: yeah, you, you just you put s-
1: your hands up in the air and, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's gone. Yeah. The whole horse is bolted. Where, I guess, yeah, where do you land your helicopter in that situation, like you just said? Because if they do come back out on you, like, do they do they hit the helicopter? Do they, you know, you could damage your machine if they're just running all around.
0: And Yeah, usually I landed back, like the one gate that I had open, I'd land back outside that in behind the yard and I'd have my helmet off, my seatbelt undone when I hit the ground, tie it down and you'd be out, float, get that, swing that gate, and um, yeah, like you had to do it while your cattle was still going the other way. Like you just, you couldn't afford to mark around because if mm. you if you idled, they'd be back out.
1: Yeah, I, did, I would not want to be in that situation. That's a lot of pressure. What I'm just wondering, I'm wondering this, which I'm guessing some of the listeners might be wondering: When do you do a muster where only a helicopter is mustering and yarding up versus what we're so used to seeing, which is you know. A crew of people on motorbikes or horses or buggies.
0: Um, it, it, oh, back in the B days, it seemed to be a hell of a lot. Hell, though, like I was always mustering by myself or with another pilot, and never anybody on the ground. Never anybody to set your yards up. They just said, "Ah, uh, the fuel will be here. We want them in this yard, that yard, and this yard." And there might be three yard ups a day. Um. Yeah. And very rarely anybody on the ground to, to help you or do anything. And it was only after the BTEC program that people started to slow down. Do like, I'm, I'm sure there was areas that did use a lot of people, people on the ground and that sort of stuff, but I was never exposed to it that much, you know. And, and if you did have somebody on the ground, they were on a bike bringing a tar for you, that sort of stuff. It was only after BTEC that a lot of things. Fell into place where people went wanted to go back to the ground because if you with BTEC you had to inject, wait three days, then run them through the yard again and read. So it it was just that much yard work for everybody. Like it just you never horses got faded out because you just had to do too much yard work to stay on top of the cattle numbers coming through.
1: Would it also, I guess, if you were working on the Barclay, that is fairly open country, so it might – would you say it's easier to do a solo muster as a helicopter on the Barclay versus some of the more timbered country around the place?
0: I reckon in the timbered country they probably used more horses and cattle.
1: Yeah, because they've got more places to hide and you might need someone on the ground to go and, put, like, you know, push them out.
0: Uh, my opinion was the Barclay was harder to muster than a lot of timbered country. Really? Uh, just the designs. You walked up to a boar, or you, you know, you you get to a boar, and you've got two and a half thousand head, or two thousand head, or fifteen hundred head. They've got a square built around the trobs that that have got a couple of trap gates in. So you know, you've got a fifteen foot gate. Usually, that gate's facing the wrong way for where you want your cattle to go. There's a thousand head milling around inside and outside. So you're trying to get them out of the cooler. Keep your calves mothered up and then head them in the one direction without anybody else there. There's no horses on the ground. So you got, and then with, you know, you'd get into where, um, you're preg testing into paddocks. And so 85% of your cows had wieners. Well, it looks like, or calves. When you see that many calves and wieners in one mob on those, that numbers of cows, there's no way your cows can cover up your wieners and your calves and that sort of stuff. So you, if you couldn't leave, or try and leave that ball with everything mothered up. All you did for the rest of the day was chase cards and weaners back to your tail. You know, and as soon as you left that tail, all your cards and weaners turned around and ran back to the ball. So, yeah, it was a lot tougher, in my opinion, on the Barkley than it was. Like, I'd, every now and again, I'd get a job to do at VID that have more machines, more people on the ground, Oh, and you're just going, this is easy.
1: Oh, okay. So it was harder on the Barclay because you'd be out there on your own versus – so it's not because it was different type of country or anything like that. It's just because you would be given – you'd have to go out and kind of do that solo, whereas in other areas, uh, not so much because it had different country types, but you'd have more people, whether it's in the – like more support, whether it's on the ground or aerial.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay. And, and like in the VRDs, it seemed to be, oh – Shit, mate, we're having a bit of trouble. Where are you? Oh, I'm just ferrying past over here. Oh, come and jump in here and give us a couple of hours. On the Barclay, there was none of that. Yeah. Like, you, you were there. You you didn't have nobody else to rely upon but yourself. Or um, I did a lot of work with Ashley Dixon. And, like, we were, we mounted on the Barclay together for about four or five years. And it was good when both of you were in the paddock because you could back each other up or, mate, I'm going to be tied up here, you know. Um, Or can you come and... Can you come and watch this tower for a bit while I go and fuel up and then come back? So you, you could cover each other. But when you were there by yourself, you you know, you're watching your fuel and thinking, shit, I need another five minutes here before I – if I can get another five minutes and then go and fuel up, I'll be just past this and these cattle only be halfway back to the bull when I get back here.
1: It just sounds like you've got a hell of a lot of irons in the fire or balls in the air. So much to manage, especially when you're out on your own. What was it like that first time or if you remember, or you know, when you f- were first learning to do that yard up or mustering on your own and you didn't have anyone else there with you? I'm guessing there must have been times where you just lost the whole mob or like, you know, when you when they all came back out of the yards and you know, start over again.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you just go, holy dude, what's going on? Like, you know, you sort of, yeah, you just start from scratch and start all over again and think I've got to do this a bit smarter.
1: What's the uh, greatest number of times you had to try and yard up cattle before you actually got them in the yards? Like if they, if they blew back on you once, would it usually the second time you'd get them in or was there any times you can think of where they kept, you know.
0: No, usually if you didn't get them the second time, you never got them. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, was, no. <laughs> was that
1: an awkward call to ra- to make on the radio to Well,
0: you know, you, you might get three quarters of them or, you know, lose X amount and then you go, "Uh, we need to do a tidy up here and we need to go into another paddock with them or something, you know. And But often, you know, you could sort of say that, but you'd have to actually make that happen yourself pretty quickly. And um, if you couldn't get hold of some, if you couldn't get hold of other people, you had to go, look, mate, this is what's happened, um, you know, and I'm fully booked for another 30 days. Like, I, I, we got today to sort it out and it, you, you'd go, oh, shit, maybe there's a holding paddock over here or somewhere where I can put them in and, um, or you run out of time <laughs> Like it it wasn't an easy process to sort of get through. Yeah.
1: With the ability to do mustering and yarding up without a ground crew, I know that was you saying that's because in those days the ground crew were often tied up with yard work because there was so much yard work to be done during BTEC. I know that still happens I don't know how regularly these days, but you know, my partner he he does that often enough as a pilot where he'll go and muster and do stuff without a ground crew. Do you think we'll ever get to the point where ground crew will, during mustering, obviously we still need them for yard work, where they'll become obsolete or less needed?
0: No, I think to keep this industry alive, we've actually got to go back to coaching mustering and using a lot more people on the ground. Mm. Um, Just Because um, just doing yard work is hard on people. You know, like just day in, day out branding, it's hard on people. So, the more you can get them out on bikes, whatever, just get them out there in the field, um, and they they get a lot better feel for cattle and that sort of stuff as well. Like yard workers, you get desensitized, and helicopter pilots get desensitized too because they don't hear things bellow. You know, they don't get back in the yards and and actually, they you know, they all they hear is. Radio chatter <laughs> and noise and fuel and you know so you you get desensitized to animals actually bellowing, looking for a calf, running back looking for a, to mother up, and um and don't worry, I was as desensitized as anybody towards it because it was just like I had a job to do, muster this paddock, get them in the yards, do it, and I would achieve it, but probably wasn't the best for the cattle.
1: I was just about to ask, how do you think it affects the education of the cattle and how they respond to being handled in different situations when they've been worked on the ground with a ground crew versus um, just, you know, mustered just with aerial support and and only
0: worked from the air? Um, I've, I've done it once or twice, pulled mobs of cattle up, big mobs of cattle up with a helicopter and walked them while other helicopters have mustered into me. And like that was like when i'm talking big numbers i think that was six seven thousand head we had in one mob and i just kept pulling them up and um ashley dixon kept mustering into me and he'd pull he you know like just depending your are always sort of bouncing off each other but i've only done that once or twice and it worked really well but i think cattlemen didn't actually start out in helicopters it was pilots that started out in helicopters so the mustering of flat-facing them and taken to one corner or of the paddock, they never got pulled up. Like one helicopter didn't sort of, the, the mentality wasn't right. Like if if a cattleman had been in a helicopter right from the start, he'd said, oh, no, no, we pull them up, you muster into me, I'll just keep walking them and we'll yard them up. And even to this day, if a helicopter pulls pull them off a of cattle up and then hands them over to the people on the ground, they're a lot easier for the people on the ground to handle. But that art is pretty rare in pilots because people on the ground haven't seen it and a lot of times they're going, oh, what are you doing? Oh, I'm pulling the cattle up. Well, oh, you know, you're just making hours for the helicopter and you're going, no, I'm not. (laughs) I'm pulling the cattle up, you know. I'm putting them in a mob, pulling them up and then I can hand them over to the horsemen and they can walk away with them. Too many times, like I've seen... Helicopters muster into a boar and everybody's standing around the boar under a shady tree. Like, oh, yeah, no, we've got them under control. The cattle hardly know they're there. The cattle wanted to go to the boar for a drink anyway. Like if they were going to have them under control, they would have had them pulled up a K down the fence from the boar, not standing around the boar. And you got fellows on the ground saying, no, no, well, you just land and we'll walk off. And you're going, <laughs> No worries. So you land, you lay down underneath your helicopter because, you know, you've been doing a fair few hours and then 20 minutes later they come galloping up to you and say, what are you doing? What You know, we've been calling you. you know, what do you want me to sit in the helicopter with my helmet on, my power on, waiting for a mayday call? What I, I told you she didn't have them under control in the air. Like let's shift them off the bore, hold them up there for an hour or so, let them mother up and then walk off. No, you already had them under control. That's why I landed. Well, you told me to land. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. No, there's some situations where uh, people on the ground are jackaroos, and they and they still like they haven't. But and it's not their fault. They just haven't been to expose exposed to enough stuff and told how to do it properly, and that's. Probably it's the inexperience that we've lost through BTEC was how to go out and walk up to a mob of cattle, get them under control on horseback and walk away without losing any. Now, and one of my great sayings or a saying that I like is that jackaroos can walk up to a mob of quiet cattle and lose a lot. Ringers can walk up to a mob of wild cattle and not lose any. There's a big difference. You know, Everything, everything on a bore or in... In this vicinity now, they're branded. They've been handled as wieners, and if you lose any, really, that's <laughs> that's a jackaroo act. Yeah, don't worry, I still do it. Like I still, I, I still do jackaroo acts today. You know, <laughs> I still lose branded cattle. But in, in the old days, they didn't.
1: Yeah, sometimes I wonder. I would have loved to mean around and do some musters where there was nothing in the sky, and you had to go and find them all, mob them up. I mean, God, how long would it have taken? You know, these days. Usually chopper gets out there first, mobs together a little mob for you. You kind of babysit them. And then as you like you say, as you're walking them, they keep feeding them into you or they'll, they'll kind of get them going. And then someone will go out to under the chopper and get those cattle, bring them into you. And, but imagine like just having to imagine if you didn't have anything in the sky and you really, yeah, you would really have to keep them together, keep them going. And that I think one of the hardest things to do is, like you said, when you're camped up around a boar, It's not keeping them there. It's when you want to move them off and you've got to get them all moving in the same direction. Like that's, that's the hard part. Like,
0: yeah. And everybody seems to think that, Oh, yep. We're moving off. They don't watch their cattle. Cows are trotting as soon as a cow trots, calves or a wiener is mismothered. I don't care if you're 500 meters away or 50 meters away. If that cow trots, it's going to mismother. What do you think the is going to do? It's either going to float out the lead or run back through the tail. It's looking for its mother. It's got nothing to settle down with. So, you know, people aren't watching their cattle close enough. And my, my thing with if you're on a bore, you drift cattle off. It's real slow. And if you don't do it real slow, you miss mother and then you cop it. But if you do... To to make sure, and you walk up, you don't just walk straight up to a mob of cattle. You sort of fade up to them. You'll be walking sideways, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. And then if something throws its head up and starts looking, you go, well, you know, you're far enough out for it to get used to you coming or it's going to come to you anyway. But you're not affecting everything else. You're only affecting that one animal that's throwing its head up. You can deal with one animal. If you get to that mob and you're right up close and it comes out and it takes 10 with it you can't deal with 10. yeah yeah so how people walk up to a mob of cattle the art of walking up to a mob of cattle keeping them quiet mothered up is lost because people don't know how to do it even in a helicopter like i don't if i'm going to go and shift them off a bore i don't just fly straight up there and get everything heading in the same direction I work as wide as I can and as slow as I can to keep everything mothered up and heading down the road because I know what I've got to deal with if I do miss mother everything. They're going to be, you know, there'll be a hundred calves on the tail all running back at me for the rest of the day to the ball where they last had their mother. Do you
1: think people on the ground have become too reliant on helicopters to kind of be there and save their bacon or do parts of their job for them and we're not as handy as we used to be?
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. But... I don't think it, I don't blame the young people for that. I blame like the things of BTech and how things have happened and our experience level. A lot of those fellas left the industry because they didn't like the way BTech was going and they went to the mines and had better money and better conditions. So we lost a series of, um, very experienced people that knew how to do it. And now we're sort of left with having to learn it all over again.